I can't remember the last time they put me in a room without a microphone, which means that they obviously have enough confidence that I'm going to be able to project. And they also put a big clock right in front of me because <laughs> they also know me. But in any event, <laughs> um, let, me, uh, let me get to, uh, let me introduce the topic this way because I think it's, uh, it's really one of the most important ways, I think, to, to focus on this. Um, this trip that I'm on now, I just came in this morning, and uh, Tuesday I'm going to Cincinnati, and Wednesday I'm going to Toronto, and then I fly back and I speak in Brooklyn, then I'm speaking in Muncie, then I fly to L.A. for Shabbos, then Sunday I'm going to be in Phoenix, and then Monday morning I fly from Phoenix to Newark, and then I have a two-hour stopover, and then I fly back to Israel, where I get about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and then 5.30 in the morning I fly to Prague. So, um, now I don't feel bad because I know people who have to work every day. So, you know, I just, I just get these occasional trips where I have to kill myself and the rest of the time I go into hibernation. But, um, uh, you know, I'm going to Prague. This is the fourth time that I'm going to Europe. The third time I'm going to Prague. Last time we went to Venice. And um, the, uh, the, the trip is an interesting trip. Um, it, it's really designed um, to go and see Jewish Europe. And so we either go to Prague, uh, we did that already, uh, we did it twice, then we went to Venice, which was also very exciting. You get to see the old shuls, and you get to see the history, you know, and in Prague, obviously, the Maharal and the Nodab Yehuda, and, um, and in, um, and in uh, Venice, you know, the Ramchal, and, uh, you know, around Mipando, and, and the other, other different luminaries from that period, and learn about these things. So when he called me up the first time, I said, what do you want me for? I'm, I'm not Rabbi Wine. I don't study history. I'm not Rabbi, you know, Crone. I don't prepare before I speak, you know. <laughs> I always love when Ray Crone says, goes, and this story, I called three people, and I checked this out, and I made sure it's true. I heard somebody say it over once. I say it over. It's good enough for me. I, <laughs> it works, you know. <laughs> so, um, so the... Uh, <laughs> Somebody, I, I heard this story once, I told it over, and then I found out I became the source for it. But, um, uh, so, oh, I heard Ryolovsky say this unbelievable story. <laughs> anyway, but um, I said, what do you want me for? So he says, because when your picture's on the ad, people are not expecting someone who's going to be an expert on European you know, Judaism. They just figure they'll have a good time. I said, okay, that I can do. So they bring along a professional tour guide and someone to give you know, the background on the different places we go to. And I give my regular shiurim. So um, it's, it's a lot of fun. You stay in a nice fancy hotel and they fly in a chef and he cooks all the food fresh, you know, and bakes his own bread. And, you know, we leave a lot of time for shopping. This is my idea of uh, roughing it in Europe. And, um, and uh, Motsi Shabbos during the Chinese buffet. Um, so I do a question and answer. <clears throat> and there was one year that I did this and every single question was basically the same question phrased differently. And that is, why is the educational system turning off my kid? And they, and they ask this question in different kinds of ways. But I sensed an undercurrent of frustration that exists today when it comes to the Chinuch system. That somehow it's not providing us with what we want the way we want. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not going to attempt to explain, you know, 
what the causes in society are, why this is taking place. But it's a phenomenon. And, and I want to try to put my finger on it and try to understand it from our point of view as parents. And, and those of us who are not parents yet, you know, um, I always tell the story that uh, the Russian Minister of Education asked of Chaim Volozhin, what, at what age do you start educating your children? And he said, 20 years before they're born. So, uh, so those of us who have not yet had our children, you know, or we're just starting out, we understand that the more that we invest in ourselves, the more successful we're going to be as parents. So there's a couple of different points that I need to make. And the first one is the following. And this is so incredibly important to understand. <coughs> Rav Shach said over 20 years ago, it might have been 25 years ago, but I heard it 20 years ago from every Olawik. That's my source. He said that a door today is two years. A generation is two years. And I know when I teach in seminary, I say to the girls, you know, when you look at the girls who are two years behind you in, in high school, what do you think? They say, well, they're crazy. I would never have done that. Now, I know what they do. So imagine what they don't do. You know what I mean? That these girls are doing. And those girls are looking at girls two years younger than them saying, my goodness, how do they get away with this? The world has changed irrevocably. There is no way to turn back the clock. I wish there was. Because when I grew up, and those of you who are in my age group, yeah, <clears throat> not my maturity level, but at least my age group. <laughs> I, <laughs> open parentheses. I, I, I tell kids today that one of the biggest problems that you have, or maybe your parents have, depending where you are in life, you know, is that you were raised by my generation. And my generation never grew up. We never grew up. We didn't have to. My father was an adult. My father went through the Depression. He had to build his own business. He had to, you know, support a family. There was, there was an attitude of, you have to do what you have to do. Open brackets in the open parentheses. My uh, um, uh, a friend of mine who's a psychiatrist, we, we're just social friends. And um, <laughs> I always have to point that out whenever I bring in a psychiatrist story. Anyway, <clears throat> so he said when he decided to become a psychiatrist, his father said to him, if you're going to go to all that trouble already, why don't you become a real doctor? You know? So he says, because there are people out there who are hurting, and I think I can help. And he says, people are going to pay you for this? So he says, yeah. And then he says, when I was growing up, we were too busy making a living to be crazy. Uh, that was a very profound statement, and that's true. You know, um, I had this guy who was in yeshiva who, uh, who said to me that he was having a lot of problems with his father because his father had very specific ideas of where he should be going uh, in life and was advising him what he should do and what he shouldn't do as far as his learning and yeshivas, you know. And he says and he has difficulty respecting his father because he was unfaithful to his mother. And the first two times, madach. But the third time, it was with his you know, best friend's mother, and uh, they had to get divorced, and it was a whole big mess. And, and he feels slightly resentful. 
slightly resentful. <laughs> so he says to me, what would you do if it was your father? I said, when? My parents went to work together. They had a flower shop. They got up in the morning. They worked all day. They came home. They had supper. There was no time. <laughs> People had no time to, 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 uh, to be unfaithful. Yeah, we're working. Day and night you worked. And that's what it was. Everybody had, you know, there was no time to be crazy. There was no time for anything. Everybody, my generation, Baruch Hashem, had enough time to be crazy, you know. And we never had to grow up. My father told me once, my grandfather, you know, was a wild and crazy guy. And one time he took someone's bicycle and rode down the street. I said, so? I said, I live in Yerushalayim. I see, I see guys in Kolo go to Kolo on their bicycles. You know what I mean? They have a little box for their hat. They put it in the back, you know what I'm saying? And off they go, you know? <clears throat> so my father says, adults never did things like that. No adult walked in the street without a jacket and a hat and often a tie. And I don't care if you're a construction worker. You went to work with a hat and a jacket. I'm talking about going. And then you turn them to your work clothes and then you put back on a regular, regular clothes to walk home. You didn't walk home like that. <clears throat> Nobody would show up in their work clothes, you know. Today you could see people come to, uh, come to a simcha, you know, uh, dressed like they're moving furniture, you know. Uh, people don't get it. But at that point, you were an adult. There was no such a thing. Such a thing as 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 as, uh, as not carrying yourself with dignity. I um, went out to eat with my wife, and uh, we're at the age now where you know we like to look around at other people and talk about them. <laughs> <laughs> it's part of the entertainment. Of, you know. The best is when you go to the Ramada, you know, and then you can watch all the couples on dates, you know, and see who's having a good time. I saw this uh, this one girl that we knew, and she was, you know, in the back end, she was like, and she caught our eye, and she went. <laughs> that one didn't work out. We had, we had a feeling, but, um, you know. Anyway, so I, I see this couple. We, we over, you know, we sort of guessed the situation. He's learning in Israel, and she just had a baby, and his mother came to help by taking him out for dinner which is obviously probably the best thing you can do for a young couple. And uh, they're going out to eat. We more or less piece together this conversation. And the mother is wearing a fall with a baseball cap and a jean skirt and sneakers and and push-down socks. And uh, and she's chewing gum. And I said, that's the bubba? (laughs) I said, what do you want from the kid? When the grandmother looks like she's 16, <laughs> what are you supposed to do? So, okay, so this is one of those ongoing arguments I have with my wife, you know, about, uh, you know, I, I heard this Rob speak once about Shalom Bias, and I say over what he said, not because I'm endorsing it, just because I'm saying over what he said, you know. <laughs> a Rob once said to me, I see how you give a shoe, you just listen in on other people's conversations and repeat them. I said, that's correct, that's essentially what I do. And uh, he said that there's a, there's a, a backwards philosophy. This is what this rough said. He says, uh, when a husband comes home, so his wife is wearing a, you know, ratty robe and fuzzy slippers, often in the shape of an animal, you know. <laughs> She's got a snood pulled over her head, you know, like one of the seven dwarfs, you know. And she's like schlepping around, you know, pulling apart. And then when they go out, she gets all dressed up and she gets all fixed up. And so everybody, everybody is looking at his wife saying, wow, look at how attractive she is. And he comes home and says, oh, she's falling apart. 
So instead, he's looking at everybody else's wife who falls apart when she gets home. You know what I mean? And they're thinking, wow, why does my wife look like that? You see? So instead, you should dress for your husband and not dress up when you go out. So this is one of the most irritating things I say to my wife. My, I don't say this to my wife, but when she hears this in a shir, it just gets her crazy. She says, so what are you suggesting? I should put on my Shabbos outfit so the kid can throw up on me? You know what I mean? When I'm cooking, get the chocolate all over me and get, make myself a whole big mess? And you know? Or, or like this one woman I know whose who's shaitel was a little burnt in the front because she was wearing a shaitel when she poked into the oven to look at the cake and, and singed the front of her shaitel. You know is that what you're suggesting? And I said, listen, I don't think about what I say. I just say it over. You, know what I mean? <laughs> you can work out the implications for yourself. That's not my problem, you know? But, but, there's a, but there's an idea of we want to project to our children that we are responsible adults. And one of the biggest problems that we have in Chinuch today is we are afraid to be the adults. I heard this ad on the radio when I was driving. I, when I drive, I have, I have my things preset to CBS, and then, uh, and then um, I think it's INS, and then Bloomberg Radio, because I get the traffic reports every two minutes, so I can you know, figure out how to avoid and get things, you know, because uh, you know, um, I'm like the Jewish holidays. I'm either early or late, but never on time. So I, I like to try to find the, the traffic reports, make sure that I can find my way around it, you know. But uh, so I hear this ad for this non-Jews, you know, talking about drugs. It says, you need to talk to your kids about drugs. They don't need a friend. They need a parent. And I thought, that, it's the guy you understand that, you know. We want to be friends, we want to be their friends. And we, we want to not only be their friends, we want to be their buddies. You know, there's, a, <coughs> there's an unfortunate reality that we see ourselves through our children. I had more than one girl who decided to dress Mutsanua and their mothers objected. Their mothers objected. I'm sure their fathers didn't object because fathers understand how guys think. But the mothers objected. And the, they all used the same line. You're a young girl. I wish I could wear clothes like that. In other words, when her daughter dresses up, she sees herself in her daughter. You have fathers who say to their boys, you're going to succeed in learning because I never did. And so you're going to live my dream I had a guy whose daughter wanted to go to Stern, and he wanted to go to Cornell. And so Stern College called me up. I wasn't on their payroll, you know, but I was in Long Island. I was running at Long Island CSY at the time. And uh, we didn't have a chapter in Enwood. And, um, <laughs> and uh, they, uh, they, they, he asked me to go and speak to the parents. So I went to speak to the father. And, and uh, the conversation didn't go well because I tried to talk about the dangers of assimilation and intermarriage, and he had, in fact, divorced his Jewish wife to marry his non-Jewish secretary. So that put me at a slight disadvantage with that argument, you know. <laughs> I really should have done my research. But, um, you know, but I said, you do it as an adult. She wants to go to this college. What are you going to do? Take her to Cornell and sit her down in the seat and make her go there? And he said, if I have to. And I was absolutely amazed. And he said to me, I went to Cornell, and my daughter's going to Cornell. And I know people who take the same approach with their children, you know. 
you have girls who um, aren't interested in going to a quality college for whatever reason because they want to get married and support a boy in learning and they're on the fast track and they're trying to get their degree quickly, you know, and get out into the workplace, you know. And uh, their mothers say, no, you're going to go to a good college because I never did. Or father says to the son, you're going to be a doctor because I always wanted to be a doctor and I never did. So we see ourselves as, as our children and we want to be with them. And it's, it's not going to help us. It's not going to help us. It's not going to help our kids. Our kids don't need another friend. They need a parent. So they said that on the commercial. It's got to be true. You know, can't put that stuff on the radio if it's not true. You know, but uh, I, uh, when I was growing up, those of you in my generation, you remember when they were still adults, you know, I never would call my parents' friends by their first name. That was unheard of. It was Mr. This or Mrs. That, you know, or Miss This, you know, or uh, Dr. That. Everybody had a title. Today, uh, you know, kid tells me, you know, uh, my mother's friend comes over, and I say, oh, hello, Mrs. Schwartz. And he goes, I feel like you're talking to my mother-in-law. Oh, call me Shani. <laughs> okay, Shani, you know. And, and kids end up being in a position that they're not that comfortable in. I have to treat adults as my peers. And they want to do the stuff that we do and hang out with us and play with us. And that's not what a parent is supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be above that. They're supposed to be setting a certain standard, you know. So, uh, so close the brackets, close the parentheses, right? But that's, that's the idea. The idea is that we, you know, we have to be able to project to our kids that we're adults. And I tell kids that at a disadvantage because, you know, because my generation never grew up, you know. Um, I'm about to turn 55, and, uh, which is interesting because according to my revised biography, that's about 12 years before I was born. But, um, but uh, I, I said to my wife, I said, when do we grow up? At what age do you grow up? Because <laughs> it hasn't happened yet, you know. I know it's supposed to at some point. You know, there's supposed, to be, there's supposed to be a certain point where you start to think, you know, like an adult, not like a kid. And my generation, ever, most of my generation, have reached that way. You know, we still, we still think like a kid. So let's talk about, before we talk about why the educational system is difficult for our children, etc. Let's talk about us uh, and growing up. During a particularly dark period of my life, I was a mashkiach in a yeshiva. <laughs> Victor Miller said when I became a mashkiach I knew I would be the doorman I didn't realize I'd be the doormat but uh, for me a mashkiach is a real difficult position they tell the story about this mashkiach who sees these two boys battling during Zedah he says boys boys if you fool around you know what's going to become of you they said yeah we'll have to become a mashkiach <laughs> so it's a tough position Anyway, I had this one boy. It was a yeshiva for guys who basically came after high school. And I had this one boy who had spent one year in college before he came. He was much more mature than everybody else. I knew he was much more mature than everybody else because he kept telling me how much more mature he was than everybody else. That's the way I knew. Otherwise, I would have no way of knowing. But he made sure and kept telling me, I don't know what I'm doing with these kids. I'm so much more mature than them. I'm so much more mature. Yeah. So, um, so, uh, so that was the idea. Yeah. So one time I have a conversation with him when he tells me this about how much more mature he is. And I said, you know, I'll tell you the truth. I said, 
I don't know how you define maturity, but to me, maturity is responsibility. That's called being mature. A little kid has no responsibility, as the Gemara says. You know, you give him, uh, you give him uh, money, he'll throw it away. You know, you know, he'd rather have a candy. You know, that, that's a little kid. They don't understand. There's no responsibility. I said, maturity means responsibility. I said, davening in yeshiva is at seven fifteen. And you don't get up till after 11, sometimes 12. Why do you think you're so mature? And he said to me, maybe you should be asking yourself why you can't motivate me to get up in the morning. (laughs) Because ultimately, this is your failure, Rabbi, isn't it? Now, I was able to now identify another another, uh, aspect of immaturity. Immaturity is not being able to take responsibility for your actions. Right? Um, when you, those of us who have kids, you know, how many times have we said, why did you do this? Or why did you go here? Or whatever it is. And the answer is, everybody else did also. He also went. She also went. I wasn't the only one. And we always say, I don't want to hear about them. I want to hear about you. But an immature kid doesn't understand this. Because I look at things from the point of view of, well, he also did it. She also did it. This is one of the things that my kids know you got into trouble for. There weren't a lot of things. You know, I had two things that would get you into trouble. Like really trouble, you know. One is if you lie. Because if you lie, then there's nothing, I, I can't work with you. Because I don't know when you're telling me the truth. And the other one was when you blame it on somebody else. Whatever it is, tell the truth, stand up and take responsibility. You know? So one time when my, you know, adult children uh, were sitting around the table, some of them, you know, my uh, daughter just got engaged last week. I have now passed the halfway mark, uh, six out of 11. By the time my last one gets engaged... Uh, at the wedding, they will stand up for me, not because I'm the father, but because I'm a zucking. So uh, it's really pretty exciting. But uh, my youngest is eight. My, my oldest daughter, who's 30, said that she's closer in age to my wife than she is to her youngest brother. So it's pretty interesting. But um, uh, so, you know, when you have older children, you have all kinds of different ages. It's, it's interesting. The older children, they like to sit around the Shabbos table and tell you how you have failed them. <laughs> I don't know if you're at the age where you're getting this or when you're doing this. But, you know, it seems that it's, it's a minig, you know. Um, that... Uh, you you never let me do this. You never let me do that. I, I'm talking about people in their twenties. You know, I mean, really move on in life. You know, so uh, when we used to do it to my parents, you know, they were, my mother would be like, "Oh, I beat you. I starved you." You know, and we'd be like, "No, you never starved us." But um, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> but um, my uh, uh, kids sit around. And they say, "You always made us tell the truth." You know, so we'd be, I'd be in Cheda, you know, and, um, and uh, everybody would be making trouble. And the Rebbe comes in and he says, okay, who is talking? And I'd raise my hand because I know I would get it worse from you if I lied, you know. So, Anybody else? Nope. And I was the only one who got punished. And I said, I hope you get punished a hundred times 
and tell the truth. Then lie your way out of a situation one time. Take responsibility. I don't know how many of you are old enough that you remember when Ronald Reagan was president. Ronald Reagan was the last adult president that we had. <laughs> he was an adult. And, uh, and therefore, like Harry Truman, he had a little sign on his desk, the buck stops here, you know. Um, uh, when the, uh, there was a terrorist attack on the Marine barracks in Beirut, and uh, over 200 servicemen were killed, um, he got on television and said, I am the commander-in-chief. Ultimately, the blame lies with me. I am responsible for what happened. I'm not blaming it on anybody. There's nobody else. I'm the president. I take responsibility. When Bill Clinton was president, (laughs) who was the first baby boomer president, he lied under oath. That's a felony. You go to jail for that. Or even become not president, you know. So it's a pretty serious thing. He lied under oath. And his defense, which was picked up by Barney Frank and other people in the Senate, you know, his defense was, it's not my fault that I lied. They shouldn't have asked me the question. And if they didn't ask me the question, I wouldn't have lied. So there you have it. It's not my fault that I lied. You shouldn't have asked me the question. And, uh, and that is... That is the sign of immaturity. Immaturity means I can't take responsibility for what I do. When you see, I heard this once from Rabbi Liff, he was running yeshiva for many years called Ner Yaakov, and he says, it's always amazing. I've got a group of four kids who go out and do something, and every parent says the same thing. My kid is a good kid. The other three are influencing him. And every kid... Nobody sits up and takes responsibility. The Masil Shasharim, <coughs> at the end of Perak Bay, says something that is just astounding. It's an astounding uh, sentence. Um, he, he's talking about the power of the Yetzirah and how you should not underestimate the power of the Yetzirah and how you have to, you know, work on it. And he brings a Chazal that says the following. Kol misha'ein bodeya asalarachem alav. And then he brings a, another one. Yeah, he brings some Hillel. So that's an amazing concept. If you don't have any Deya, you can't have any mercy on the person. But that's, isn't that the person who needs the most mercy? So the answer is, in psychology today, they've caught up to this idea. It's called being an enabler. Meaning, if I've got a kid who's on drugs, and he asks me for money. And I give him money. I'm allowing him to go out and buy the drugs. And parents say to me, well, what am I supposed to do? I said, tell him no. Tell him no. You know. Then they'll run away. Then they'll this, then they'll that. Yeah. At, at some point, you tell a person, you have to take responsibility. I can't help you do something that I think is wrong. <coughs> I'm enabling you to be able to go out and you can be held responsible for this now even legally. Because when somebody's doing something that's wrong, my job is to say this is wrong and stop. And not just to feed into it because that's what the person wants. Dea, when we talk about Das, Das always means, my, the way I translate it is always my sense of reality. That's Das. 
That's is my sense of reality. Chachma, Rashi says, is acquired information. Either I've read something, or I've, I've, I've learned something, or I've observed something, I know something. Bina is how I understand it. That's how I understand the information. Das is the conclusion I come up with. When I say aniyodeya, what I'm really saying is, this is how I understand reality. Now we use the word I know, when it, we clearly we don't. The best way to, to tell when a person doesn't know is when they say it twice. I know, I know. Then they for sure don't know. You know? In my career, there is nothing more frightening than when a teenager says to me, don't worry, Rabbi, I know what I'm doing. I said, I also know what you're doing. That's the problem, you know? You think you know what you're doing. You think you understand it, but you don't really understand what you're doing. You don't understand the implications. They have finally found that there is a chemical that is released in the brains of teenagers that causes them to take risks. They don't see the, the implications of their actions. If you've ever had a teenage girl who says, I don't care what they say, I'm not going to wear that. They can throw me out of school. I won't wear that. And I say to them, are you crazy? What's going to happen to you if you get thrown out of school? By the way, I have to point out because my wife gets upset. Uh, I'm from a generation where we used to say you're crazy. You know, today you're not allowed to say that. You know, but my father one time said to me, I'll never forget this when I was a kid. It made a deep impression. You're crazy. I'm crazy. Mother's crazy. We're all crazy. <laughs> it's just a question of extent. And the older I get, the more how draw I see this is. My father once said about somebody, he goes, he's crazy. I said, he's a little eccentric. My father said, he doesn't have enough money to be eccentric. He's just crazy. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so I use the term crazy too freely. I, 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 I admit, you know, you're not supposed to say that. You know, my voice says, you can't say they're crazy. You know, I said, but they're crazy. What am I supposed to do? You know, so I say, what are you, crazy? You're going to get thrown out of school. What's going to happen to you? You know, where are you going to go? What's going to happen to the rest of your life? What kind of a boy do you want to marry? What kind of life do you want to have? You're going to lose everything over a skirt? Because when it comes to clothes, girls are insane. I have to explain this to the guys. Girls know this already. Okay. The, the, you know, guys want a particular type of suit, and they will keep looking till they find that suit. You know, and once they find the right suit, they will wear it till it disintegrates on their body. <laughs> till it's nothing but suit molecules being held together by pure will. You know, and they don't want to change it, not for nothing. You know, and they'll wear a ratty, you know, sweater, whatever it is. Just, this is my sweater. This is my. Sweater. I'm not leaving it. You know, I have this Brooks Brothers shirt that I love that my mother brought for me. This is not it. I have another one. She bought me another one. She felt bad because I, I have uh, psoriasis on my back and, you know, so it itches sometimes, you know. So I just grab whatever's around, you know. So one time it was this fork and I shredded the back of my Brooks Brothers shirt, which I can't part with because it's a Brooks Brothers shirt because it's got the little, you know, things in the, in the, in the, on the sleeve, which means that it's very hush. Anyway, I didn't even know that until my nephew said to me, oh, Brooks Brothers shirt. I said, how do you know? He goes, well, it's got a little thing on the sleeve. Oh, it's great. You know, very fancy. Anyway, so it drives my kids crazy because as soon as I think of my jacket, the back of my shirt's all ripped up. <laughs> but I'm not parting with it. But anyway, so... <laughs> I did it to another show too, but uh, eventually I'll do it to a third one. Then I'll take one of them, cut it up, and fix all of them. But anyway, but um, uh, they're, they're, guys, they're, they're, but girls, and I have eight girls, so I know of what I speak. <laughs> it's one of the reasons I travel. 
because I've reached the point where there is no room in the house that belongs to me. Nothing. There's no place I can go. I, I can't go to the bathroom. I can't use my bedroom. I can't use the living room. I can't go outside. There's no place. I, I, you know, sometimes I go, I used to go in the lobby, but someone took that over too. So now I go up to the third floor. I can sit over there, more or less, because uh, nobody's in that apartment. So I sit on the stairs over there when I need privacy. But, um, you know, so I travel. I get, I get my own room in my mom's house. It's really very exciting. <laughs> We're married 31 years, and, and I still, you know, my, I tell my wife, I'm going home. <laughs> she doesn't appreciate that. But anyway, but uh, so you know, when it's a simcha, you know, if you have a lot of girls, it's, it's, it's a tragedy, you know. Because they can't find clothes on any one continent, you know, and they're always looking. They're shopping right up until the last minute. During, during the smorgasbord, they're still shopping, trying to find the perfect outfit, you know. And uh, until they, and it's ridiculously expensive, and you don't really want to pay for it, but just, otherwise she's going to wear that long, ratty skirt that the edges are all frayed. You know, and she walks and it like sort of like brushes the floor, you know. And you say, why don't you put on something? She goes, I have nothing to wear. Her closet is bursting with clothes and nothing to wear, you know. And so they'll finally buy this outfit. They'll wear it three times, never wear it again. So why? It's not me. And of course it's not you. You are a you know, um, life form, and this is an article of clothing, you know. <laughs> that is a distinction that is lost on the average girl. They don't get that, you know. They're not sure where they end and their clothes begin, you know. <laughs> so, so a kid will get themselves thrown out of school over wearing this or not wearing that, which is just so ridiculous, you know. But teenagers don't see consequences. They don't understand. That's why their insurance rates are higher, you know. When one of my kids uh, got their license, um, I said, let me know when you're driving so I can stay home, you know, so you get old enough <laughs> that you're not a terror on the streets, you know. But uh, I had a girl in Darkhibina who's, um, whose father would not lend her the car until he drove with her on the highway while she was putting on her makeup. He says, I know you're going to do this anyway. I just have to make sure you can still drive. You know, and that's why someone said to me, I don't know why they give you the road test like this. Your hands at 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock, checking your mirrors every three seconds. That's what they told me, driving between 18 and 23 miles an hour. That's how they told me when I took the road test. This is not a person driving. This is, it's a small world. <laughs> so if you want to see how a teenager drives, blast the uh, CD, you know. Let him hold a coke in his hand, you know, his other hand hanging out the window and staring with his knee, you know what I mean? That's how they're really going to drive, you know? They don't see consequences. They, you know, you don't see it. Maturity is where you have that ability to be able to look ahead and be able to understand things. So therefore, a person who doesn't have a sense of reality, you can't have mercy on them because you're just going to enable them. So a rabbi comes to me with the following question to ask my opinion. What should he do? There's this family where they bought a kid, when he turned 17, a brand new car. And a week later, he totaled it, crashed it into a tree and totaled the car. So what did they do? They bought him another one. And he was driving with a friend of his on their way to a hockey game. And they hit a woman in a crosswalk. And the friend said, you hit that lady. He says, I know, but we're late for the game. And they left her there. 
had they stopped and gotten her medical help, she would have lived. As it is, she died. They went to the hockey game, they went to a movie, and his friend is shaking the whole time, and his friend's like, relax, relax. When he got home, his parents saw what he looked like, they asked him what happened, he told them what happened, they called the police, and they arrested the kid. And the parents had only one agenda, that the kid should not feel bad for what he did. It was an accident. In his school, one of the rebellion said to him, look, sometimes you have to fall all the way down to pick yourself back up, and you'll grow from this, etc. You know? And the parents came in demanding that he be fired. Why do you suggest my son did anything wrong? It was an accident. He didn't mean to hurt the woman. It was an accident. <clears throat> anyway, the kid's in trouble with the law. And this rabbi has connections with a judge. And the family wants him to use his connections to help the, you know, to help the kid. I said, I don't know. How many kids does he have to kill? You know, how many people does he have to kill till you reach a point where you have no choice but to face the consequences of your actions. A person who is out of touch with reality has to face the consequences of their actions. And if we shield our children all the time. I uh, knew a woman whose husband was a rose color. And uh, she said to me something kind of sad once. She said... I feel like a Kodesh Baruch who sets me up for test after test, pushes me and pushes me, waits for me to fall, and then laughs at me. Now there's a depressing picture. This poor little woman in this giant hand is pushing her and pushing her. When she falls down, you hear, ha, 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 yeah. <laughs> now I could tell her that that's not true. I made that mistake the first time I substituted in a girls' seminary. A girl said something, and I said, no, that's not true. And she said, how can you say that to me? You just invalidated me. <laughs> I said, what are you, a parking meter? I'll put in another quarter. <laughs> that was it. I lost the whole crowd. They go, that's so disgusting. Did you hear what he said? To I can't believe he said that. <laughs> I was like, okay, 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 I'm sorry. It was too late. I lost the crowd, you know. <laughs> so I could tell the woman it's not true, but then I realized I would just be invalidating her. So I, I said, okay, you know, Coach Baruch Hu pushed you and pushed away from you for last year. So I said, maybe you're reading it wrong, you know. I said, I, all my kids, Baruch Hashem, know how to walk. You know how they learned how to walk? They start crawling, and eventually they stand up. And, and you take them by their little hentelach, and you walk with them. It's a lot of fun. And then at one point you stop, and you say, okay, come, walk to Abba. And the kid freezes and says, okay, what's the deal? He knows I can't walk, you know. I said, no, no, you can do it. He says, okay, I trust these people. And takes one step and takes another step, and then they fall. And what do we do? Yay! <laughs> the kid says, these people are sick. <laughs> <laughs> they wait for me to fall, and then they laugh and cheer. But of course, we're not laughing and cheering that you fell down. We're laughing and cheering that you took two steps. That's what you hear at Kodesh Baruch Hu laughing. You made it. And next time you'll take five steps and you'll learn how to walk and how to run and how to dance and how to play. But a parent has to be prepared to let a kid fall down. And if you scoop him up each time so the kid never learns how to walk and achieve his balance, you know, 
feel a little embarrassing when he's 35 and you have to carry him into the office, you know? <laughs> Mom, can you get me a coffee? Never mind, I, I put it on the floor. I can crawl over it. You know? The kid has to learn how to walk. You've got to be prepared for the kid to fall down. The kid's got to make mistakes. And, and if we try to insist all the time that our kids are right and that we're going to protect them from the consequences of their mistakes, they're never going to learn how to be responsible. Right? And so, you know, we, we know kids, not our kids, but we know kids who are holy terrors. Their parents let them get away with murder, you know, sometimes literally. But uh, they run around and they do whatever they want and it's the next thing, you know. And if you say to the kid, oh, oh, what are you doing? Say, Don't yell at my kid. I'll discipline my child. And they sit down to have a conversation. You know that what you did was wrong? <laughs> now I don't want you doing that anymore you can't bite the Schwartz boy okay <laughs> look he's bleeding <laughs> I don't want you to do that anymore okay <laughs> you know this is not terribly effective <laughs> I, I really try to work on myself to become a better person and I have achieved a certain level where I'm approaching decent, but I'm really not there yet because I'm, I'm so small and petty. But there's this one guy, I've, I've, I've always, every year I try to forgive him in my heart. I really try, and it's really hard for me, you know. Um, I, I, was, I work hard on Yom Kippur to dive in well, and certainly by Neila, I really try to put everything to Neila. So this guy, for whatever reason, I don't know what his reason was, he decided to come and dive in a Maishal. I, I dive in a little McLot at the time, you know. It was a real small place, you know, it's really crowded. And he comes to sit next to me. I guess uh, there was an uh, empty seat or somebody moved up or it is. And he brings his kid with him. Two-year-old, three-year-old, I don't know. And the kid is making noise, and the kid is talking, and the kid is pushing back and forth, bumping into me the whole time, walking back and forth, walking back and forth. The whole thing. His father's diving. Father's... Evidently, this doesn't bother him. Why? Because the kid's busy bothering me, so it doesn't bother him, you know? Now, there's two possibilities. He doesn't realize, and, and he's just out to lunch, or he does realize, and he's inconsiderate. Anyway, I realized at the end of davening, it was the second one. Because at the end of davening, he says to me, I'm sorry if my son bothered you, but I had no choice. And I thought to myself, sure you did. You could have stood outside with your son instead of bringing him a little kid into shul and have him bother everybody. Elowat, you felt you had no choice because you had to dive in. I, The fact is that you'll disturb other people in the process. I don't care. It's not my problem. So who's the little kid there? There's no question. The father is. You know, destroyed my whole, my, my, my whole needle for... for now, I should have been a better person, and I should have had a higher level of, of kavana, and I shouldn't let these things bother me. But I was upset because of that lack of consideration, if I can say it, lack of maturity on the, on the part of the parent. You know? My son, for years I had eight girls and one son. Um, and then Coach Balfour gave me two little boys when I was too old to kill them. <laughs> now I just, I'm just like, stop. <laughs> Put down the knife. <laughs> do you see he has a knife? What can I do? He doesn't want to put it down. 
I'm too old to stop him. He's faster than me. <laughs> I've been thinking of buying like a tranquilizer gun. You know, it's like, too, too. You know? uh, got him. <laughs> but uh, my first son, I was really more or less on top of it. I was a very proactive parent. Something he's never forgiven me for to this day. <laughs> That's a little too proactive. But I had a shita, right, right or wrong, I would not bring him to shul until he was old enough to read. Because otherwise, what do I do? I, I bring him to shul, I sit him down next to me, I give him the picture books, I give him the little pekalach, and he sits there. So what does he learn? He learns, you don't dive in shul. You read, you eat, you talk. You know, now for some people, that's taco what they do in shul. <laughs> so somebody said to me once, "What are you going to do about the little kids running around in shul?" I said, "Why don't you speak to their parents because they're outside running around too?" <laughs> so it's like, you know, what was the point? And and he would say to me sometimes, "Abba, can I come to shul with me?" And I say, "You know, it's too much for you. It's too much for you." Once he could read and he would come, I, I had a sheet, and that is, I didn't want to wait until he until I saw him getting fidgety. So he'd come, and I'd let him dive in, you know, a uh, certain amount, and then I would hand him my watch. Couldn't tell time yet. I'd hand him my watch, and I'd say, when the big hand gets on the two, come back. Go outside and play. And he'd come back, and he'd come back for whatever it is, and he'd stay for part of the laning, and I said, okay, go outside, when the big one's on the five, come back. And he went outside, play, and come back. You know? And eventually, he asked, can I stay in for the whole diving? You know? And I let him because he was 17. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, he was about not. It was about eight, maybe eight, nine. He wanted to stay in there. To him, it was a, it was an issue of pride. You know, he wanted to make it through the davening. But but I wouldn't take them there just to just to you know be a little kid. I don't know if they come at the end of davening. They want to come at the end of davening and see Avin such you know. But let them you know. We didn't have a junior congregation in the Miklat, you know, so uh, there were no groups, you know. So uh, it, it was a question of you're going to come to shul. Shul's a place to daven, you know. It's a place where we have to approach it with a certain level of uh, of seriousness, and a kid has to learn that, you know. Um, I know parents who say, "What can I do? He doesn't want to go to school." doesn't want to go to school today. You know? He's tired. I said, well, I'll tell you what my mother said. Get out of bed and go to school. <laughs> it wasn't, we never really had an option, you know? We had no negotiating position with my mother, you know? You get up in the morning, you go to school. I have to go to work even when I don't feel like it. You got to go to school even when you don't feel like it, you know? If you had a, a pretty high temperature, you could get off. But that was about it, you know what I mean? You have a cold, take tissues with you. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> you go to school. That's what you're supposed to do. You go to school. And it was a sense of responsibility. You know? And there's so many people who are afraid to, to tell their kids no. Um, we need to be parents, like it said in the, in, the, uh, in the commercial. You know? We need to have clear what we want. And understand this. I teach a course for rabbis how to answer basic questions of Judaism. And I always say the hardest question to answer is the one that you can't answer for yourself. Those are the hardest questions to answer. You know, if, if you're not sure yourself, you're going to have a real hard time answering for somebody else. The example I wrote was Corbanos. You know, I heard this uh, um, Orthodox rabbi and Reform rabbi arguing about Tishabov on the radio. And so... Uh, the moderator says to the Orthodox rabbi, so you're looking forward to the rebuilding of the temple? He says, yes, I am. With animal sacrifices? <laughs> and he gasped. You could hear him literally go, eh, you know. 
And then he fell apart. And he started, uh, you know, going like, well, I mean, of course, one has to understand the context. I mean, I mean, there is a minority view that says that the offerings will only be from the vegetable kingdom, but that's, of course, a minority view. <laughs> and finally he says, yes or no? Yes. Animal sacrifices? Yes. He says to the reform rabbi, and you? Says, no, of course not. Ha, 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 ha. I heard this. This was about 30 years ago, and I was like, oh, my goodness. But for the grace of God, so go I, you know? And so there's an old expression, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with getting caught once, but, but don't get caught twice. Sit down and find the answer. And so I worked on myself to get the answer down. And six months later, I was in a question and answer, and somebody raised their hand. I said, okay, Rabbi, what about animal sacrifices? I said, what about them? Now, he was not prepared for this. Because <laughs> I don't think he ever really thought through the question himself. He just knows whenever I say this, you know, you know every rabbi falls apart, you know. So he says, well, uh, you're, you're killing animals. I said, you're a vegetarian? He says, no. I said, how do you think they get the meat? <laughs> then they go over to a cow and say, hi, could you spare a rib? You know? <laughs> So I'm not there when it happens. That's what's bothering you? No problem. You can appoint a hit Cohen to take him out. He'll take care of the cow for you. He says, but it's barbaric. I said, why? He says, because barbarians do it. I said, barbarians eat lunch. Do you eat lunch? You know? Not everything that a barbarian does is by definition barbaric. Anyway, he realized he was totally stuck. I said, let me rephrase your question for you. I understand there might be an advantage to killing an animal if it serves a purpose, but what purpose does sacrifices serve? Is that your question? Uh, yeah. Oh, that's a good question. So let's look at the Ramban. <laughs> but uh, but I, I realize it's hard to answer a question. I, I, I teach rabbis how to answer questions, as I mentioned, and I tell them. I said, when it comes to women's issues... If in your heart of heart you're a male chauvinist, don't answer these questions. Because a guy comes to me once and he says, I used your answer and the woman said that I was patronizing her. I said, you know why? Because you were patronizing her. I said, you don't really believe this. You know? He says, and you do? (laughs) I said, listen, I'm one of six boys. We didn't have gender-appropriate jobs in my house, you know. Uh, my mother's theme song was, it's the maid's day off, you know. So I learned how to cook and how to shop and how to do laundry and how to, you know, take care of a house, which is pretty funny because I married my wife who was raised to be a scholar. My mother told me, don't do any housework, just study, you know. So when we got married, I had to teach her how to do housework, you know. So it was, uh, she was a little touchy about that for the first few years. But... Um, um, but, uh, but I, you know, when I was a, when I was a buck, I was a very popular Shabbos guest, you know, because when I would, you know, eat over at somebody's house, at the end, I would, I would clear off and I would, and I would serve and I would help, you know, and the husband was always appalled. He goes, oh, no, no, my wife does that. I said, I'm sorry, I wasn't raised that way. I don't know how to sit through a meal. I, I don't know how. That's how my mother brought me up, you know. I noticed the wife almost never complained. <laughs> it was only the husband who complained. <laughs> but I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't see those things, you know. So if you're, not, if you're not comfortable with it for yourself. So when it comes to issues for our children, if we're not comfortable with it ourselves, or if it's even worse than that, if we tell, if we tell the kids, you know, you know, well, my Rebbe said, <laughs> your Rebbe said, <laughs> if you knew anything, you'd have a real job. You know, everything your Rebbe said, you know, <laughs> like I was supposed to be impressed, you know, or, uh, or, um, 
whatever the message is, we give it across that this is not important, you know? You know, parent just tells a kid, you know, most important thing is to tell the truth. I can't believe that you lied. You're not supposed to lie. Uh, Mr. Schwartz is on the phone. Tell him I'm not here. You have to tell the truth. I'm telling the truth. Most important thing. <laughs> and you see this all the time. Father will lecture a kid about how important it is to learn Torah, and then he walks into the computer to check his, uh, check his email, you know. And uh, well, he sits down with the newspaper. He does anything but open up a safer, you know. And the kid doesn't see from you that learning is important. It doesn't make a difference what you say, you know. They don't hear what you say, they see what you do. And that has a much deeper impression than what, what you say. What you say is not so important. So, let me get back to, this, to, to the question that I started with that these parents asked me. Why is the educational system not succeeding with my children? And there's many answers to this question. And I want to give you the answer that I think is the most important answer. It hit me that time when we were in Prague. And it just seemed to me like it's just the answer. I started in the Hebrew Academy of Nassau County in 1964. And um, first grade. And uh, I was a kid who came from a non-Shomer Shabbos home. Um, it, It was interesting. I remember... My father grew up in an Orthodox home, but he had no Jewish education, and he kept whatever he remembered. And he made a tremendous sacrifice to send his kids to Yeshiva. You know, my mother said to me, uh, you know, she met Ralph Fendel, she convinced him to send the boys. I said, what was this? And he says, uh, you know, it was hard for us because your father went bankrupt. Uh, I said, what was this? He goes, right around when you were born. Because every child brings their own mazel. But, uh, <laughs> you know, so it was very hard, and he sent us off. And, um, and we received a very important message. The message was, we need you because the fact that you're going to a Torah institution means that you are a hero. That was the message we got. You're a hero. When I, in, the, in the early 60s, it was a given that orthodoxy was dead in America. Torah was dead. Every shul that opened was conservative. Orthodoxy was for old men in the Low East Side and the, and the, and the Bronx and the East New York and the Brownsville and, you know, all the, 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 the Jewish ghettos. And anything, the wave of the future was conservative. You know, that's where life was going. And if you chose to go to a Jewish day school, then you got one message. You're keeping the Jewish people alive. You're a hero. We're depending on you. You couldn't throw a kid out. There weren't enough of us. You couldn't afford it. I heard this story from the assistant principal at the time, Reverend Gottesman. He says he was uh, using the facilities, not, not the tennis court. And, uh, <laughs> and these two kids are sitting outside of the stall. And one of them is trying to sell the other one a, a screwdriver. And, um, and uh, he says, well, how do I know it works? He says, well, I'll take off the door. <laughs> and he starts unscrewing the door to the stool. So the kid says to him, wait a second, maybe there's somebody in there. So he sticks his head underneath. And he goes, oh, hi, Rabbi. <laughs> now today that kid would, um, might not be in that school anymore. It's a chutzpah. It's a chutzpah. You know? We're not for these kind of kids. We're only for the best kids. 
I had a friend of mine who was a big time Chacham. He says, that doesn't say much about you as a school if you only know how to educate the best kids. Right? What do you do with everybody else? <laughs> well, make other schools for them, you know? They, they said this to a Steinman, and he says, I don't know. When I was a kid, we went to Cheder with everybody, and it was successful, you know? No, we're not for them. You know, we don't deal with these kids. We, we throw them out. We throw them out. We, we don't need them. And every kid in school gets this message covertly or sometimes overtly. We don't need you here. You step out of line and you're out. And every kid knows it and every parent knows it. And if your kid gets thrown out, probably when it comes to the next kid, you see, because you already have a kid on the street, because you know, <laughs> once you get thrown out, nobody else wants you either. You know what I mean? And it's, 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 you know, There's a seminary in Israel that has a principle that if you break one of their rules, you're out by sundown. That's their, one of the teachers told it to, I had heard this, but one of the teachers told it to me with pride. You break a rule, you're out by sundown. I said, really? There's a halacha that the basin can't be done someone and kill them in the same day. But you can. That's pretty impressive. Usually you have to wait a day till you kill a kid. You know? No. It means that we don't need anybody today. When I was growing up, we needed everybody. Today, we have too many Jews. We don't have enough places in school. There's not enough apartments. There's not enough parking. <laughs> it's okay, we can get rid of some. And we get rid of them. I, I once said this to Remender Weinbach, who besides being the head of Orsameach, was one of the people who had started the Chadash, which was a high school, and that was sort after high school. And, uh, and uh, a lot of people, had a lot of time is on them because they reject a lot of people. So I said, listen, I said, I, I understand you get 500 applications for 100 spots. That means you have to turn down 400 people. So you could do a lottery, you could do this, you could do that, or you just have to come up with a reason to puzzle 400 people. And it's not hard to puzzle somebody. Because either the girl, or her mother, or her aunt, or her sister, or the neighbor, there's always somebody that did something wrong. And you could say, no, this is not for us. But you have to come up with a reason to puzzle 400 people, you know. And we could do it. We can puzzle people very easily. Chinuch does not mean education. Chinuch means dedication. Chanukah sabayis means we are dedicating this house to a purpose. Chanukah is when we rededicated the Beis HaMikdash. Chanukah sabayis. Yeah? When we dedicate something to a purpose... Chinuch means that our children have to feel that they are essential to Klal Yisrael, that they have a purpose in this world, that they're necessary. Now, but how many of us feel like that? How many of us feel like it's, we're really necessary? I've heard this from more than one uh, teenager. I feel like if I died tomorrow... It wouldn't make a difference. I don't think a coach Baruch Hu cares whether I'm in this world or not. And I say, make no mistake. If Kodesh Baruch Hu doesn't want you here, he has no shortage of ways of getting rid of you. If you're still here, it's because he believes that there's something you can do in this world that nobody else can. A kid has to grow up with a sense of purpose. I'm here to do something in this world. I make a difference. I'm important. I had a girl in a of high school. She said to me, she's not happy. And she says, and I was always a good girl. I never did anything wrong. I never went here. I never did this. I never did this. I never did anything wrong. 
I said, it's true. You also never did anything right. You just did nothing. You know, you sat at home and you hid. <laughs> you stay out of trouble, you know. I said, what did you do good? What did you contribute? What made you happy? What gave you a sense of purpose? And if we don't give our kids a sense of purpose, a sense of chenuch, a sense of dedication to a cause that they're important, then they walk through life looking over their shoulders the whole time, and they feel like nobody needs them, and nobody wants them, and that they're not important, and that they just try to keep their head down and stay out of trouble, which is a sad approach for anybody to have in this world. Um, Do we have time for questions? So I'm going to officially finish at this point um, to to tremendous applause. And... um, (laughs) Thank you, it's not really necessary. And... um, (laughs) I learned this from my wife. (laughs) Um, For the benefit of the ladies, you know, we guys really aren't bad, we just don't get it. We really don't. You spend a lot of time inside of your own heads going like this. We don't. We don't think anything, you know? So my wife used to get offended all the time until she worked this out. So now when I come home, she says, did you see the house? And I said, yeah. Because you see, I cleaned up everything. I was like, oh, yeah, it looks really nice. She says, yeah, I did a great job. Yeah, you did a great job. (laughs) She feeds me the lines and I repeat them because I would have said them if I was aware. But I just, you know, we just don't realize stuff. You know, anyway. So it's always good to express what your needs are. Anyway, so as I say in Parshas Karach, we're going to open up the floor. (laughs) And if anybody has any questions, I'll do the best I can to try to answer them or to tell you an irrelevant story. (laughs) What they teach us in rabbi school. (laughs) Yes. Excellent, because there's refreshments. Oh, yes. (laughs) Is your answer really from parents, or is it from a hanhan? Oh, the ikr chenuch is the parent. We, it's nice to believe that we can pass the job on to the school, and then when our kid turns out crummy, say, it's the school's fault. But ultimately, it's us. My wife more than once went to a parent-teacher's meeting, in one of the Beis Yaakov high schools in Erzsel, and they say, your daughter is so wonderful, she's so special, we can tell the home that she comes from. And my wife says, well, of course, it's because of the school. And the teacher often will say, we know the school, it has to be the home. Because <laughs> the best that a school can do is educate a kid. That's not chinuch. Chinuch has to come from the home. We as parents are ultimately the ones who are responsible and we choose a school that's going to help us. If we don't, we're doing everybody a disservice. Um, this guy tells me a story. He's in Brooklyn. And uh, he was kid was going to a school that doesn't let you have a TV. It's an old story, obviously. Who has a TV today? We can get everything on the computer, you know. But uh, he did not have a TV. So he told the kid to tell them that we don't have a TV. So they didn't ask him if they have a TV. They asked the kid, what's your favorite TV show? And he told them. And he says, can you believe that they're using these tricks on little kids? And I said, let me get this straight. You taught your kid to lie, and you're upset at the school because they figured it out? You know, I said, if you, you want to have a TV, then don't send your kid to a school that doesn't let you have a TV. So he says, yeah, but the best kids go there. 
I said, why are they the best kids? Because they don't have TVs. <laughs> I said, so let me get this straight. You want to send your kid to the best school where they don't have a TV and then have a TV, right? I said, if you want to have a TV, send your kid to a school that lets you have a TV. Or get rid of the TV. But you, but you have to be in sync. The school, you, I can't send my kid to the school and say the school's responsible. I'm responsible. And then I have to find a school that, that shares my values. And if I'm not holding where the school is holding, then I have to change myself. When Ari Fendel started the Hebrew Academy in Nassau County, there were almost no Orthodox kids in Long Island who were going to the school. It was all kids from conservative backgrounds. And he told me a story that somebody once told him. They said, Rabbi, you're making a mistake. You know, you're making the kids wear tzitzis and making the kids do this. Goes, you have to reflect the community. And he says, the yeshiva is not there to reflect the community. It's there to set a standard for the community. And the community has to raise itself up to that standard. So if we pick a school for our kids, we have to pick a school for our kids that we're prepared to live with that standard and to encourage our kids to reach it. But remember, it's always up to us. It's always up to us. So I, 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 my first four daughters went to four different high schools. Right. The fifth, sixth, and seventh all went to the same one. I finally found my high school. And it's not, it's not that choshev. And I spoke to more than one parent in Israel who said to me, I would rather send my kid to a choshev high school knowing that it's going to turn her off to yahadus but it'll help her find a good shidduch, then send her someplace that doesn't have such a good name, but she'll be happy. More than one parent said this to me. So I chose the place where they want the kids to be happy. You know? And, um, and the parent said to me, how do you like it there? I said, I love it. And I told him story after story, and he says to me, I wish I had the courage to send my daughter there. But I could get her into this school, so how could I say no? Even though... I know it's not the best place for my daughter. So we as parents are not helpless. We have to look at a school and say, does this reflect my standards? Am I able to raise myself up to those standards? And if not, then what am I going to send my kid this double message for? And parents do this. They tell their kids, go to this high school and don't pay too much attention. Just, you know, we, we don't do that at home. So what are you sending them to that school for? Send them to a school that reflects your values. My opinion. Yes, sir. Some of the local yeshivas have a lot of uh, extracurricular contests, contests and incentives for boys. I'm talking about the, the boys have to go, the boys have to, to, to learn in the weekend, at, at night, etc. In addition to their homework, in addition to their regular school curriculum. And there's there's uh, there, there's there's two valid valid you know uh, points to, to, that, to that argument. That one is well, you should encourage the boys to learn as much as they can with that to a healthy rate. You were talking about. 10, 20 minutes, you know? The other side is, the kids are 6, 7, 8 years old, let them go play, they learn a lot. Enough. They're in school until 4.30, then they have homework, etc. Let it be. You know, I guess, naturally the answer is, it depends on the kid. But really, you know, what's, the, what's the balance? Because the kid, let's say, who doesn't want to do it, if his whole class is doing it, it's no longer so uh, optional. You know? So you stole my thunder. You're right, it depends on the kid. There are certain kids who just for them to get by with what they have to do is enough, and more than that, they're going to go crazy. And you have to know that. You know, like I would hand my kid the watch and tell him go outside, you know. You have to know when a kid needs a break. You have to, you have, to have, you know, um, enough insight into your kid that you don't break them. 
you know. Other kids, you, you know, you offer them an incentive, you offer them, you know, covered, you offer them candy, you offer them money, you offer them anything, and they'll jump at it. Because they're thrilled to pieces to be able to win a, an award or a contest. And to them, they don't care if they're memorizing sports statistics or Mishnayas. To them, it's the same thing. I, I'm, I'm getting reward for it at the end. So it all depends on the kid. I had one kid who loved memorizing Mishnayas, and I have another kid who comes home and does, just not interested. He's not interested in memorizing stuff, and he, you know, he does very well in school. So I don't push that kid. So a lot of it comes down to who the kid is. You're right. So when there's peer pressure, then you have to you have to tell a kid, don't worry, it's okay. You don't need to do this. Because if you stress a kid out, once a kid is not enjoying learning, um, my friend Rabbi Gronowski took his kids to Shach to ask a Shaila and get a bracha. And while he was there, he asked him a question on a chinuch. And at this point, Shach was, you know, somewhat on in years. And he says, let me show you chinuch. And if you remember at that point, you know, Shach was like this, stooped over. And he picks himself up, and they're like, Rebbe, I'll get a few. He says, no, no. And he walks over to the cabinet, and he opens it and takes out a box of candy. And he walks over to the children, and he tells them, take a candy, make a bracha. And he walks back, and he puts the box back, and he closes it, and he sits down. And he looks at the father and says, that's chidduch. In other words, if it's sweet, if it's enjoyable, if the kid loves it. And that's got to be our goal. There is a, a tremendous problem that kids don't enjoy learning Gemara. And if a kid does not enjoy learning Gemara, you can threaten him, you can do everything you can, but at the end of the day, he's not going to be successful because he doesn't enjoy it. You know? One of the, uh, the, the great secrets... Um, uh, of my life is that I happen to be one of the most talented Gemara Rebbe's around. And uh, in fact, I, I was invited by the Kolo and Elizabeth to speak at, at a Yom Yun. So I said, okay, what do you want me to speak about? What do you want me to speak about? Gemara, Rashi, Toysus, Rambam. We bring in parents and their sons, then give them my Makomas, they prepare, and you give a shit. I was like, you want me just to give a Gemara shit? He says, yeah. He goes, wow, no one's ever asked me to do that before, you know, like, I'm fine. Anyway, he said, so when I got there, he says, listen, people were saying, you know, you don't bring over Yolaski to give a Gemara share, you know what I mean? So the last 15 minutes, do some of your own shtick, you know? So I said, fine. Afterwards, he said to me, I made a mistake. People enjoyed the Gemara share so much, you could have gone on for another hour, you know? And I've had kids in my share who said to me, I never enjoyed learning Gemara before. But, but if I can't get a kid to enjoy it, that it's fun, it's more fun than sitting on a computer. It's not more fun than, you know, playing ball. He's not going to do it. It's got to be something that's exciting. It's got to be something that's fun. It's got to be something that's interesting. And, and uh, you know, whatever I'm going to teach them has to be that kind of a thing where it's an adventure. So, you know, if it's going to be extra time, and the extra time is going to make him feel, you know, oppressed, and make him feel like, oh, I never get any time for myself and everything that, it's a mistake. Somebody asked for shock once, how do I pick a cheder? He says, the one with the most recess. You know? You gotta, you gotta, you gotta know a kid. There'll be plenty of time for him. He'll catch up. Yeah? To piggyback off your last answer, so there's the balance between making, uh, let's say, and learning fun for a kid and enjoyable, 
and teaching them that the responsibility of sometimes you do things because you have to do it, not because you like it or you enjoy it. So there's two chazal. One is Kofalim Hakigigas. The Kosh Baruch held the mountain over the head like a barrel and said, if you don't keep the Torah, I'll drop it on your head. The other one is he held the mountain over the head like a chuppah. So somebody said to me, such two completely diverse ideas. You know, on the one hand, it's a threat of death. On the other hand, it's a chuppah. I said, I could tell you're not married. <laughs> well, you'd understand it's the same thing. We go under the chuppah, and it's a beautiful thing, and it's very sweet, and it's very nice, but it's a mountain over our head. We don't come home because we feel like it, and if I don't feel like it, I don't come home. You have a responsibility. But if your marriage is only a responsibility, and it's not happy, then you need help. The same thing with our kids. We have to teach our kids this is a responsibility, but by the same token, we have to be able to make it something that's enjoyable for them. So if it's just a chiv and there is no enjoyment in it, so then it's like a person who says, I'm married because I, I took on a responsibility, but I don't enjoy it. Well, that wouldn't be fun. Um, I, uh, I, I, I want to... Yes? Um, how do you give them purpose like when they're so young? Maybe you don't know what they're doing. How do you make them feel like they... It's, it, when, when they're young, it's the easiest. When they're young, it's the easiest because you tell them, you're going to daven and, and bring Mashiach. You're going to daven and build a base of Mikdash. This person's sick. We're going to daven for them and make them better. My little kids would say to me, you know, we daven for this person because it's, you know, it's the, you know, the, the, the you know, the Tashbar, you know, the Tinochash the, 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 the Rabban who are able to to, to, to their tefillahs are the most choshev. And they believe it. You know, they understand that they have that purpose. You know, every mitzvah you do is a brick in the base of mikdash, all this kind of stuff. When they get older, you have to actually give them stuff to do. And I always tell parents who are having kids who are, who are on the edge or have problems, to get them involved in the, something. Let them work in a Kirov organization. How many kids I've had who are going off the derech and they got involved in the Kirov organization and they completely turned around? Because now they can tell it to other people. They can help other people. They get involved in a chesed organization. They do something where they can help somebody and they suddenly feel like a million bucks. It changes the whole way they look at life. So that's extremely important. All right. Yeah? Are you thinking of davening uh, that uh, teach the kid how to daven that we're going to help something, we're going to help go to Hashem? Now, this is an age-old question. I'm not uh, dealing with it on an adult level, but... Uh, uh, Hashem makes up his mind, and uh, sometimes it's a zero that can be overturned, can't be overturned by steel. But how do you explain that to so, uh, a kid? Uh, someone said, Dom for and never uh, the, the person doesn't get that. How do you explain that to someone? Dom for this person. So, so what I tell them is, I say, listen, your, your tefillahs worked, and they helped the person. I don't know how, how much longer they would have lived, or they wouldn't have lived without your tefillahs. You gave them more life. And all the tefillahs that didn't help this person, they went to help another chola. So you kept somebody else alive. So uh, listen, you know, you, you have to keep trying. And I always tell people is, you know, Kaveh El Hashem. If that doesn't work, Chazak V'yamesh Libech V'Kaveh El Hashem. Because there's nobody else up there. So that's it. So we got we to gotta go in there and do the best that we can. And, uh, you know, and Amir Hashem, you will make an impact. All right, I, I feel terrible because I have a large group of Jews and there's food on the other side. Um, and a person has to keep their priorities clear. 
This week's parsha, Yitzchak uh, says to Esav, "Bring me matamim, bring me yummy food, and I'll give you a bracha." So um, the one thing we learn from this is the only way that any Jewish event works is you have to have food. So uh, how did they put it? You know, they tried to kill us, they didn't. Let's eat. So um, that's more or less the essence. So Amir Hashem, you know, all of us will have siyata deshmaya, be able to get a kodesh baruch help to be able to help us with our children.